came on um, later. Excuse me. We've been going through the gospel according to Matthew. And Matthew, one of Jesus' 12 apostles, is going to tell us a little bit about himself today. Um, we'll get into that momentarily. But we see something like a bookend, if you will, like the close of the first section of Matthew's gospel in, in verse 35. If you read the words of verse 35, you actually see the same, if I'm not mistaken, the, the exact same wording that Matthew uses in chapter 4, verse 23. So before I read this, this passage in its entirety, I want you to look at the words of verse 35 of chapter 9. And you can flip back to chapter 4, verse 23, and you see the same wording. And this is what it says. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. So Matthew has been, that's basically a summary of everything that Matthew has been teaching. Everything that Jesus did. It's as if Matthew has been shining the spotlight on Jesus. And all his followers and everything else that's going on surrounding him are kind of in the shadow, if you will. Not that they're unimportant. But Matthew's been focusing on this specific aspect of Jesus' ministry. This preaching and teaching the good news, the gospel. That's what that, that word actually means, is good news. And healing these diseases and sicknesses that we've been looking at over and over. And that summarizes everything that we... We have been reading and that we'll finish reading today. And in the next section, which we'll pick up in the new year in chapter 10, Jesus actually sends his 12 apostles out on a mission. It's not the, the same as the Great Commission, but it's very similar. And he tells them to go out to the lost sheep of Israel and to basically do what he's been doing in his name, um, that they would turn to him. So we're coming to the close of a, an important section, the first section of Matthew's Gospel. And again, I'll begin reading in verse 9 through the end. Jesus, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn when he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch 
will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. While he was saying this, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She thought, she, she said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, Go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith will it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Would you pray with me once more? Father, we, we want to pray this prayer that Jesus encouraged his apostles to, to pray. And we want to recognize that you have called us to be these workers of your harvest. And so use your word at this time to instill a resolve in our hearts that is greater than a New Year's resolution, but will be something of a life resolve, that we will be your workers to help reap the harvest of eternal life for many souls 
who don't yet know you. I ask that you would use this time and use this word from your word to do that. For Christ's sake and for our good, in his name we ask. Amen. Well, I've simply entitled this based on the first section of this chapter, The King Who Came for Sinners. That's what we're thinking about at this time of year in particular, that Christ is the King of God's kingdom and that He's so gracious that He would leave the glories of heaven and come to a world that was rebelling against Him and somehow make us His own. The King who came for sinners. And I have five points following the flow of the text. The first one is this. Looking at the verses 19 through 13. The first point is Jesus calls sinners to fellowship with Him. The second point, Jesus and His gospel is the standard of all true religion. From verse 14 through 17. And thirdly, Jesus continues to show his power and compassion. Verses 18 to 33. Four, Jesus is rejected by the self-righteous Pharisees. Once again, that's verse 34. And last but not least, Jesus is the good shepherd, watching over his sheep forever. So let's look at this first point then. In verses 9 through 13. Jesus calls sinners to fellowship with him. Look at how long Matthew waited in his gospel to even mention himself. As we have divided or or marked out the scriptures in our day, we have these chapters and these verses to help us study the Bible. That's why they exist. But nine chapters Matthew waited to even mention his own name. Matthew was a tax collector. And it's as if he didn't want to mention anything about himself apart from the context of being one who was called by Jesus. I think that in itself is instructive for us that Matthew wants us to see how important it is that we understand our identity in light of Christ. That we are those who are in Christ, though we have a past, each of us. And though we have different callings. You see, this is kind of like Matthew's testimony. Look again at verses 9 through 13. Jesus saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. And he says two words which are repeated over and over. Follow me. Follow me. Matthew would have likely heard a number of things that Jesus was doing. The healings probably, the teachings, certain things that people were saying about him. So it wasn't as if this was necessarily the first time that Matthew heard anything or saw anything of Christ. But this is significant because as a tax collector, Matthew was someone that wasn't really liked by many people. Tax collectors would work for the Roman regime, the Roman oppressors who who had held Israel in their reign and their grip 
for a long time at this point. And Matthew would have been seen as a sellout because in working for the Romans to take taxes from the Jews, almost all the tax collectors were known for shaving a little bit off the top and putting it in their personal savings and their own piggy banks. So they weren't liked by Jews because they knew that they were going to make sure that Rome got what they were supposed to get, the tax collectors, but they were going to do it in a way that they could get a little bit for themselves on the top. Rome didn't really have much value for them either, other than the fact that they made sure that the taxes were paid. So to be a tax collector, your close friends would have probably been other tax collectors and whatever assets you could accumulate with your money. It was quite a lonely life, we could imagine. But another thing that we have to recognize in this is that this lonely occupation was not the only thing that could have caused loneliness. We, we see today, with the, the suicide rate soaring, that many people, even by getting money and, and lots of money without dishonest ways, have come to recognize that money can't buy happiness. Loneliness in itself is actually one of the most painful effects of the fall. And so Matthew would have perhaps been sitting in a restaurant or, or in the marketplace throughout the week and felt like he was the only one there, even next to many people. He would have been struggling with this feeling of being an outcast. And Matthew is not hiding his past. This is kind of ironic that he brings up his past because remember, the, the primary people that Matthew's writing for to see the Messiah is the Jewish people. It's the Israelites. So it would almost seem counterproductive to tell them that he used to be a tax collector. But this shows us a, a few points. It shows us that Matthew wants us to understand, I was once a tax collector, but Christ called even me to show us the, the grace of God. And this is a, a lesson that we learn clearly throughout the way that Jesus acts, even apart from his teaching, that God has grace for any sinner, from any walk of life, no matter what they are like. If they look to him, they will receive a special grace by looking to Christ this is really the message of Christmas as well that God a holy God has loved an unholy people in his holy son we have seen from this gospel account that Jesus went to people that were known as outcasts like lepers and was not afraid to touch them and to heal them and was also not made unclean by doing so. Jesus went to these outcasts, and again, there were outcasts because of leprosy, or touching a dead creature, or certain discharges of blood. There's different reasons, reasons why people became outcasts or became unclean. But Matthew was stuck in sort of a, a social outcast 
status, which in some ways might be even more difficult. It's one thing to know you're an outcast and live off in a foreign place by yourself. It's another to be in the middle of thousands of people and to be made to feel like you're an undesirable. Jesus came to show love to people like Matthew. And Jesus, again, calls Matthew into this communion and this fellowship. And notice immediately what Matthew does when Jesus says, follow me. Jesus is teaching very often and will will teach things that are meant to call people in a general way. But every time you see these two words used in the Gospel of Matthew, follow me, they're immediately followed by, and so and so got up and followed him. This shows us the power of God's call. What's been known by many theologians as the effectual call. In Romans chapter 8 verse 30 we see this this chain, if you will. It's called a chain of salvation by some people. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. In other words, salvation is not just about us receiving a gift, a gift of forgiveness now. But it comes as an entire package. God will lose none of his sheep. And from the moment we see Matthew called, he rises and starts a new life. See the first thing he does? He wants his tax collector friends to know about the grace of God in Christ Jesus. He has a meal with him. Remember in the beginning chapters of this gospel account, we see John the Baptist and Jesus preaching the same gospel, the same message in a sense. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's important that we recognize a couple things about the call of Christ. This is what Christ is seeking to do through all of us as Christians. is to call sinners. But if we look at the account, the same account in the Gospel of Luke chapter 5, we see these words in, in Luke 5.32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so we get the understanding, a fuller understanding. It's not a contradiction. It's a more rounded understanding that the, the call of Christ is one to turn from sin and turn to him. So Matthew was called to turn, called to change. And sometimes we look at these accounts where Jesus calls a person to himself and then he has a meal and he fellowships or has dinner or lunch with them. And we we misunderstand this call. Christ does not call people. Sometimes we say this, come just as you are. It is true that God calls people to come to Him in repentance and faith, just as you are. Nothing else in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, one hymn says. But He doesn't call you to stay as you are. He doesn't call us to remain in our sinful thinking or sinful feelings or sinful patterns of life. A true call of Christ is a call to complete transformation. The word repentance 
Metanoia has to do with the changing of the mind, but when the Bible speaks about the mind of a person, it doesn't separate it like we sometimes do, as if you know the mind is here, the heart is here, the will is here. No, the Bible shows us a picture of a, a person whose mind, heart, desire, will, intentions, and actions are all connected. You can understand them in separate ways, you can understand them distinctly, but they're all together. The fruit of what is inside of a person is shown. The fruit of repentance is shown by a life of turning away from what is clearly wrong and turning to the righteousness of God in Christ. This is what Christ came to call us to. This is what Christ has called Matthew to. And we see the grace of God in Christ speaking to Matthew, fellowshipping with Matthew, Approaching Matthew and perhaps his loneliness and saying, I'm willing to forgive you if you genuinely turn to me in faith. I'm willing to spend time with you. And we see the, the actions of Matthew in calling him to have dinner and to calling his friends and, and other sinners to have dinner, to know about this Christ. Immediately, Matthew doesn't go to seminary. Matthew becomes an evangelist as soon as he receives the grace of God himself. And we can find that as an encouragement. Amen? Amen. We don't need to go to a special school to train, to share Christ. We just need to genuinely know who he is, spend time with him in his word and prayer, and open our mouths in faith, and do the same thing he did for us, call sinners to repent. Notice the, the, the tax collector's attitude here. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? This was a common attitude, a common question that they would ask. And Jesus' answer is clear. This is the reason I came. To recapture what has been lost. To call sinners to myself. And to make them new. I think there's a few points of application that we can take from this. Again, there's, there's some extremes we want to avoid if we're trying to think about how do I engage in calling sinners to repentance? Because this really is our purpose as a church. The church has two, if you will, two corporate purposes. The first one is what we do, especially on a Sunday morning when we gather in person we worship God that is why we gather here primarily to worship God for what he's done in Christ but connected with that is that we take that out into our workplaces into our homes into the highways and byways and we share this message of the gospel think of the great commission go and make disciples. Very often we think of evangelism, which is kind of what you could call the going. Go and make disciples, and then teach them all that I've taught you. We think of that going, we think of evangelism, and, and we almost enact it differently as more of an invitation. Very often we think of evangelism as maybe inviting someone to a church service. But the Great Commission commands us to go. 
And part of the way that we're going to go is, is interacting the way that Christ did with people who don't yet believe. How will they hear? How will they believe if those who believe do not share the message with them? And let's be real about it. The majority of this country and every country in the world is not coming to these kinds of services that we're sitting in right now. Which means that those of us who are the church have to take the message to them, right? So, there's two extremes that I think we should avoid in terms of how to interact and how to, with God's help, call fellow sinners to repentance. The first one um, is like, you could call it the hanging out principle. Just hanging out. And this could sound or seem something like this. I know I'm a Christian. I know I have to take the message of the gospel to unbelievers. But what I'm going to do is focus all my efforts on being a witness through my lifestyle. I'll eventually get to saying something. But most of the time I'm going to spend is going to be about showing people the love of Christ. Showing people the truth of Christ through my actions. And then pray, praying in private that my actions will speak louder than my words. That's a famous one, isn't it? Actions speak louder than words. Well, I have a special news announcement. If Christ didn't use words, people wouldn't have known what exactly it was to believe about Him. So we do need to be salt and light through our actions. But they have to be coupled with words to explain our actions. I once heard a pastor use an analogy about, um, I think it was three or four people. One was an atheist, one was a Hindu, and one was a Christian. They all did the same amount of work. They all did the same quality of work. They all did the same. And at the end of their lives, they all came to the end of their lives, they were going to die. And someone that worked with them asked them the question, you know, why did you work the way you were? You know, why did you do, do your work the way you did it? Well, the, one said because I'm a Hindu, one said because I'm an atheist, and the other said, I'm, well, I'm a Christian. And I think the point of that story is basically people are not going to just understand the gospel by seeing us. The danger of this first extreme just hanging out is that not only will we show and, and witness well without the words that need to be heard, but we can end up condoning people, condoning unbelief, condoning clear sinful patterns in a person's life. And, and people are not supp supposed to feel like they're undesirable, so we should, to use a, a phrase for lack of a better term, we should hang out. We should spend time, at least, and do some form of interaction with fellow human beings that are not yet believers. But if they never hear a loving challenge, how are they going to know that we don't think that something they're doing is wrong? If my friend who's not a Christian continually looks at movies and things that are ungodly and cause his mind to think about women who are not his wife in the way he shouldn't, but I only laugh at his jokes at work, 
or I don't laugh, but I don't say anything about it, what am I doing? At the end of the day, I'm, I'm no better. As a Christian, we should politely say no. You shouldn't enjoy and, and make these jokes at the expense of your wife who's not here. That's just one example. I don't have anyone in mind, but I've had different jobs, so I know how this works. You know? And these are the kind of things that we have to pray about, but you, you can't just hang out. Jesus didn't, contrary to popular opinion, many people are teaching this, Jesus didn't make an impact by just eating with people. In the midst of those sufferers, he was teaching. And he didn't stay there. He taught, and he said, come to me. And those who came followed him. And those who continued in their sin, well, you, you occasionally see examples of him rebuking them and calling them out for it. The other extreme is complete avoidance. This is what the Pharisees usually struggle with. For the purpose of making sure they remain ceremonially clean so that they could go to all the services and not have to sit out for a couple of days because they were not spiritually clean because they had been mixing and mingling with the crowds too much. They didn't go to certain people like the tax collector. But how was Matthew to hear a call to repentance and hear about the grace of God without someone coming to him and spending time with him? So we want to avoid the, these two extremes if we want to be faithful to our mission as a church. We're not to just hang out and we're not to completely avoid. We want to be like Christ who actually did what these Pharisees asked, ate with tax collectors and sinners. That word sinners there in one sense categorizes all of us, but usually when it's used in the Bible, it's, it's referring to people who are both unbelieving and unrepentant in a particular pattern of sin. So we have to understand who we are in Christ, what our purpose is, and we also have to have patience as we try our best to be good witnesses. This is another, another point of application just from this section alone. We need to have patience. Uh, many of us have forgotten what God has been patient with us for. We all have backgrounds, we all have different stories, and we all have different ways that we came to Christ. Some of us have what I consider the best kind of testimony in a sense. The testimony that I wish was mine, that we believed at a young age and walked on a straight path by God's grace. Some people hear me share my testimony and say, wow, that's, that's so powerful. You know, I wish I, I could understand. No. There are so many things that we have to work through when we commit ourselves to patterns of sin and darkness that you can't get rid of sometimes for the rest of your life. But whether we have a, what, what some would call a powerful testimony or what I think is a powerful testimony because God preserved many of you and you walked from a young age and didn't commit yourself to the outlaw lifestyle for lack of a better description. Regardless of how you came to Christ and how you've walked with Him and how long. We need to be patient with people as we try to 
reach them with God's love. We cannot expect a, a man, for example, who's spent the last 50 years of his life swearing, you know, cursing every other word, to automatically just stop talking like that. Many examples could be given, but we have to have patience while God the Holy Spirit works in people's hearts to realize who Christ is and what He's calling them to. Show them the, the example of patience that God has shown us. So Christ came and called Matthew, who is the author of this gospel, and Matthew is shining light on the fact that his mission and the mission he gives to his church is that we would call sinners like ourselves to repentance. I think it's also important that we keep in mind as we seek to fulfill this mission who the mission is given to. In other words, this is a distinction that we see throughout the Bible. That there's two people groups in the world. There's those who are in covenant relationship with God. Through faith in His promises. Through faith ultimately now in His Son. Those of us who are in the new covenant which is by faith. And those who are not. If we want to know how and who we are to reach with the message of the gospel. We need to know who's part of this covenant family now and who's not. And it's not biological. It's important to remember this church. God's covenant, even from the point of the Old Testament, has been built on promises and Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul goes on to say in Galatians and other portions of the New Testament that it is those who believe who are the children of Abraham. And because those who are in the new covenant are the worshippers of God, because Christ said, no one can come to the Father except through me, we have to remember that even those in our families, our closest relatives and our closest friends, who may have walked the walk for a while and talked the talk with us, they need to hear the gospel too. They need to be called to repent if they are not, as far as we can tell, in this covenant relationship. And there's no blueprint that I have to suggest to you this morning, but we have to keep these things clear in our minds as we seek to be like Christ in calling our fellow sinners to repent. We have to have humility in recognizing that we are no better. We were all born in sin and shaped in iniquity. And God in Christ and in His grace, He calls unworthy sinners like Matthew, like Mark, Luke, John, like myself, and like any of us here this morning or listening on Facebook who have believed this gospel. Which brings us to the next point. The gospel is the standard, or Jesus is the standard of all true religion of all true worship you can go through the the patterns of worship that we're going through in this service and even sing the songs and even give the tithes and do all that and still not even be worshiping you know that the, the bible says god jesus said the father wants people who worship him in spirit and in truth 
And it's being in, in a covenant relationship with Christ, spiritually united to Him by faith alone, that is the standard of all true religion. Notice the first words of verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? This language of bridegroom was also used when John the Baptist was giving a little description of who Jesus was, trying to remind his followers of who John the Baptist was, of who he was, and of who Jesus was. We have a good example of this in John chapter 3. If you turn with me to John 3, if you're using the Pew Bibles, it's page 752. 752. Just starting in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem, because there was plenty of water, and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, speaking of Jesus, well, he is baptizing. That's Jesus, right? He is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater, and I must become less. He must increase, and I must decrease. John the Baptist is applying this language of the bride and the bridegroom in the same way that Jesus is here. All through the Old Testament, there are different descriptive themes that God uses to describe His covenant people, the nation of Israel at that time. And one of them was that Israel was like a bride and He was like the bridegroom of Israel. And if you read the, the, the verses that follow, Jesus talks about uh, wine and wineskins, old and new. God also called Israel his vineyard and said he's the vine dresser. You see, Jesus here is applying this language to himself, these titles to himself. He's saying that he is the bridegroom. And just like John the Baptist pointed people to Christ, these disciples of John the Baptist came asking Jesus why he wasn't following certain traditions and customs of the Pharisees and even of John the Baptist and Jesus's answer is basically I supersede that I have come to bring something that John and the entire Old Testament has been pointing to in myself and in the, the language there of the wineskins being old and new and, and bursting and basically Jesus saying that 
The old must stay with the old and the new must stay with the new. He's pointing us to the fact that Jesus, at this moment, in his teaching, in his living, in his miracles, is enacting the righteousness through his own life that it will require to bring in a new covenant. He's pointing them to to pay attention to him and to follow whatever practices and traditions are put in place by his apostles, by himself, by his apostles, which we now have clearly laid out for us in the New Testament. He's not saying the old is bad. Remember the words in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I didn't come to destroy the law, to abolish the law. But I came to bring it to completion in a way that no one else could. And so Jesus is not bashing John the Baptist's followers, but he's reminding them of the language that John the Baptist used at some point to point them again to who he is as the Messiah, as the King. And this shows us also the fact that Jesus will use these kinds of titles for himself, it shows us that Jesus is divine. This is, again, why the Pharisees hated him. You look at verse 34, and it says that the Pharisees said he's, he's casting out these demons by the prince of demons. In other words, he's in league with Satan. He's working with Satan. And they said when, when Jesus forgave the sins of the paralytic in the beginning of chapter 9, when he said, your sins are forgiven, they said, that's blasphemy. Which it would have been if he was not truly able to do that. If he wasn't God. So this is language of divine authority. But also covenant love. Covenant faithfulness. Think of the language of a bride and a groom. This shows the affection that Jesus has for his people. Sometimes he uses the language of sheep. But this is the greatest earthly love that you could think of. It is supposed to be, at least. The love between a husband and his wife. As it was since the beginning, before sin entered. The two become one. And Adam praises God for this great union. And all throughout the Old Testament, God is giving us pictures like this of Christ. And so we see God's covenant faithfulness being worked out through Christ. Thirdly, we see Jesus continuing to show his power and his compassion. Not only in calling an undesirable, as people would have seen it. Namely Matthew, but in these healings. In verses 18 through 33, the first one is, is a ruler of the synagogue named Jairus. You can find it in other Gospels too. And Jesus sees the faith of Jairus. Notice what he says there in verse 18. If you just come and lay your hand on her, just even lay your hand on her, she'll come back from the dead. And, and, and the two blind men who call out, Son of David, and say they believe that he can restore their sight. They're showing that they have faith in Christ. And using that title there, Son of David, is drawing back again to the Old Testament, to the Davidic covenant promise, when God said to David that 
from your line, from the, from the line of Judah, the scepter will never depart. I will establish a ruler from your line and his kingdom will be forever. And so all of these titles and these themes, son of man, son of David, son of God, the bridegroom, the vine dresser. These are showing us who Jesus is. And we see these people who are unlikely or undesirable showing true faith in Christ and being received as his people because of their faith and their repentance. Just like the mute man in verses 30, 32 through 33 who is oppressed. They have faith in Christ. And the words might be a little confusing at first when you read, your faith has made you well. But it's important that we understand what that means. This does not mean that the faith itself heals. I want you to think carefully about this because there's a lot of false teaching around this today. Faith is hope that is based on the Word of God. It is a confident trust in what God has said. Your faith is only as good as the object that you're placing your faith in. In other words, it wasn't just their trust that healed them, but it was the person of Christ, the power of Christ that healed them. <clears throat> so we see Jesus showing compassion once again. Excuse me. For the outcasts of all kinds. And in verse 34, we see the sad reality that those who are closest to the Word of God reject Him again and again. Look at verse 34 with me. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. Ironically, they crucified Jesus for what they claim was spending his entire ministry blaspheming. They called him a blasphemer. But when they said that Jesus' works and words are of the devil, that was blasphemy. Jesus says that there is one unforgivable sin. Eventually he gets to the point where he teaches that. The unforgivable sin is not suicide or homosexuality or a whole list of other things that you could think of. I'm not condoning either of those things, by the way. But the unforgivable sin, most clearly seen in Scripture, is actually attributing the, the teachings and the works of Christ to the devil. It's when the Holy Spirit is revealing from the Word of God, either through the Word of God or in the person of Christ in His time. It's when the Holy Spirit is revealing the truth about Christ. And you basically look at that and say, no, that's of the devil. Or that's a lie. God is not telling the truth so anyone who rejects the gospel at the end of their life the reason that there should be it should be understood that there's no hope of forgiveness is because you have lived and died committing 
the unforgivable sin. These Pharisees, over and over, apart from a few like Nicodemus, commit this sin. In fact, the whole nation of Israel at large, the majority of the nation, rejected the Messiah. Who caused Christ to be crucified? Who went to the Romans? This is a sobering thought. It's the people who God had committed Himself to for hundreds and hundreds of years and who had the Word and who had the testimonies and the prophets who rejected the Messiah. This was the ultimate sin that they could have committed. But it was prophesied from long before that God's people would reject His Word and that God Himself would have to come and at the point of them rejecting His Messiah that God would come and be a light to the Gentiles. In some of your Advent readings maybe you've seen this or and you think about certain Christmas passages if you want to call them that like in Isaiah where it says the virgin will, will give birth to a son and that this son would become a light to the Gentiles as one of his ministries. He would make a, a new covenant that doesn't just come from one nation but all people who look to him would be part of it. But we want to make sure that we're not just hearers of God's word. You see, there's only one heaven and there's one hell and there's one end result to being like these Pharisees. Whether you say it outwardly that you reject the gospel or you just quietly, respectfully, politely don't receive the truth of the gospel. You will face God's judgment because of it. And there are degrees of judgment. Which brings us to the last point. Jesus is the good shepherd watching over his true sheep. Look at these words again. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, the crowds who were rejecting him, he had compassion on them. Isn't that amazing? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. See, the Old Testament also has a number of prophecies and prophetic judgments against those who are in leadership positions in Israel at, at Jesus' time, becoming corrupt shepherds that don't truly shepherd God's sheep, God's people. We see an example of this in Ezekiel 34. In fact, the whole chapter of Ezekiel 34, if you wanted to read that later, is helpful in this. But th these are the words from verses 15 and 16. It says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat of the strong I will destroy. 
I will feed them in justice. Christ is the fulfillment of this prophecy because he has come and is looking at the supposed to be shepherds of the nation at this time and he's pronouncing judgments on them as they seek to reject him and lead others to do the same. God shows us his faithfulness in this. His judgment is fair. His judgment is righteous. But He shows His grace in that He took that judgment and placed it on His one and only Son. The one who is the Good Shepherd, the Great Shepherd, became a lamb to be slaughtered. And even now, Christ continues accomplishing His mission of calling and shepherding His sheep and seeking out the lost. How does He do that? If He's been gone for over 2,000 years, physically speaking, if He has, in His glorified humanity, been seated at the right hand of the Father, or let me rephrase that, since those things are the case, how is it that He calls people to himself and shepherds us he does it through us that might sound intimidating and maybe it should but let it be encouraging as well let it exhort us to recognize that God knows what he's doing if he called you to himself then he knows how to use us and He knew exactly who we are and, and who we are going to be and who we will be. And He wants to use your life to continue calling the lost sheep to the fold. As a, a hymn that we sometimes sing in the evening, bring them in. Bring them in from the fields of sin. Bring the wandering ones to Jesus. That is our our mission bring them into true worship to true fellowship with the living God and Christ has established this work starting with his apostles and we'll read about that in the following chapter when he sends them out and through their writings along with the Old Testament we have the foundation of the entire church in the scriptures and the Holy Spirit uses his word to build us up for the sole purpose of worshiping God and bringing others to become worshipers. It is important that we, we seek to fulfill this mission. We seek to be committed to this mission. Again, thinking about this, this theme of Christmas, the King of Glory came to earth to call sinners like Matthew, me, and you. How are we responding to this call today? How are we responding? How will we respond? He now commands us to repent and believe and call others on the basis of His own authority. When Jesus eventually teaches about the church in Matthew 18, where He first uses that word, ecclesia, which is a body of Believer, believers, gathered believers. That's what the word church means. 
When Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus says, on this I will build my church, he goes on to say, I give you the keys of the kingdom of God. In other words, the very authority to make declarations about who is in and who is out is given to the church. That is a serious commitment. But it's not based on anything we like or don't like. That entrance, that, that, that in and out distinction is based on something completely outside of us and utterly in Christ. It is upon the authority of the true gospel and the word of God that we can tell a sinner who may have spent 50 or 60 years in what we might consider the worst of sins this moment you can be born again you can be made new you can be declared righteous in God's sight and set free if you will repent and believe the gospel and so that is what I want us to end by thinking about today Jesus uses two simple words follow me anyone who is hearing these words now are you following him? Not are you following along with people who follow him, but are you following Christ? Have you been made new? Are you repentant? Are you not just one who has repented, but are you daily trying to be repentant, turning to Christ and turning from your sin? Well, this is what God has called us to as his church. To worship Him in spirit and in truth. And to help others come to know who Christ is. And we can see in this text that He is faithful to keep us faithful. And so may we pray like we see Jesus commanding us in a sense to. May we pray that God would help us to be workers in His harvest. And bring more workers in to continue fulfilling the task so that more than just 92 years, the gospel will do its work in this part of Cayman. But if the Lord tarries another 92 or 900, His gospel will continue. He is faithful. Let us be faithful to Him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we once again ask you to help us in this mission that you've called us into. We thank you for the example of Christ, the way that he was teaching and preaching and healing and showing that the kingdom of God was being established in a special way, that he was the king of kings, that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We thank you for your grace and your patience with us. We thank you that there are so many things and, and so many years of patience that you have you put up with so much in our lives. Lord, we ask your forgiveness if there are ways that we know perhaps or think that, that perhaps we have kind of slacked off from seeking to use your word and our lives to participate in this mission. 
And we know that it's only because your work of building your church is not complete and that there's others that need to come to Christ to be set free from their bondage, their enslavement to sin, that He has not returned. So help us to, to search our lives and to spend time praying about how we can be better servants for you day by day. And help us to find a, a genuine sense of purpose and power from the Spirit as we seek to do this. Give us the wisdom that you alone can give and the strength and the courage to do what you call us to. So we thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I'd like to invite the praise team up to the front at this time. <clears throat>